Welcome to Behind the Blazer. I'm your host, Scott Sempier. And in this premiere episode, I sit down with Jeff Smith, the conductor and artistic director of the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. We learn about his history as a boy being a chorister, how he got to his position in the Philadelphia Boys Choir, and what he's looking for in a chorister. So enjoy. Behind the Blazer is the official podcast for the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. For over 50 years, the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale has been entertaining audiences near and far as America's ambassadors of song. The Emmy-winning and Grammy-nominated program has toured regions and countries of all inhabited continents, performing for many dignitaries and in many of the world's premier concert venues. This podcast, Behind the Blazer, reveals the stories from the choir through interview format. Hello and welcome to the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale official podcast. I'm your host, Scott Sempier, and today I'm sitting with Jeff Smith, who is the artistic director of the Philadelphia Boys Choir, and he basically manages everything that you see and you hear with the choir. Welcome to the show today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I want to start by telling you a story. People had been impressed originally with my son singing and encouraged him to audition for the boys' choir, and I saw that the choir had an audition coming to a school near us. We sat in this music room where boy after boy sang. So he started singing the Lord's Prayer, and he did it a cappella, and he hit this note that I was like, oh no, he might have done something wrong, and you <laughs> stopped him. You stopped him, and you, you played alongside him, and you helped him through, and then you ended with this piano flourish, and I thought, yeah, this is a great sign. He's going to... He's going to hear back and it's going to be good. But when we did get that email, you invited him over to Philadelphia to have a more formal audition. We went into this room and you separated the parents from the boy. Then you heard him sing for a little bit and you told us about the beginning cadets. And so our journey began. That was three and a half years ago. It's hard to believe it was that long ago already. Mm. Wow. Um, but the reason I tell this story is because I wanted to highlight the fact that every Musician has a story. Every part of the Philadelphia Boys Choir has a beginning story and how we became a part of the Boys Choir. And so more often than not, you or Jeff Smith are the face people see and the distinguishing mind behind the selection process. I say you're not just the head coach, but you're the scouting department and the general manager as well. <laughs> right, right. So today we're here because we're interested in your story. Really, you're more than just a leader of the boys and and world-class musicians, we want to know who is Jeff Smith? Well, where shall I begin? I guess you were saying every musician has a, a story on how we started, so I guess I'll tell you how I first became connected with the Boys Choir, and that was also as a boy. When I was eight years old, I auditioned, and the conductor at the time was Robert Hamilton, and the choir was rehearsing at uh, LaSalle University. And so the auditions were there. I went into the audition. I Actually, on the way to the audition, uh, I was in the car crying. I said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And my parents said, well, we, we think you'd be good for it. Just, just try it, and then we'll see how it goes. And um, I didn't know at the time why I didn't want to do it, but truth be told, it was, I was just nervous. I was nervous. I was afraid I was, wasn't going to do well and you know, be embarrassed. You know, So I went in. And I did, I did really well, and the conductor said, yeah, he's, he's in, 
uh, we'd love to have him, and I think he can just do a little bit of the training program and go right into the choir. And I was ecstatic. I was like, all right, I'm glad I did this. <laughs> so thanks to my parents for saying, you got to do this. So I was in the advanced cadet program, the training program, for about a half a year and then moved into the performing choir. And I sang in the choir for about six, six and a half years. It was just a fantastic experience. Besides the obvious excellent musical training and education, I got to go on several tours, international tours with the choir. Uh, got to sing with a lot of great professional organizations in the city. It was, it was just a fantastic experience. And, you know, as a kid, every once in a while, you know, you, you kind of have that little bit of a dream that, oh, wow, wouldn't it be cool to conduct, to be the conductor, to, you know, to conduct the boys' choir. Never really thought that would happen. Sure. But, you know, there was that little a gleam in my eye, I guess you could say. And as a matter of fact, uh, when I was in it was either 7th or 8th grade, we were preparing for our tour to Russia. And that year, only half of the choir was going to Russia. The other half was staying in Philly for the July 4th celebrations and other things happening here. And so there was a particular rehearsal where the conductor said, all right, listen, I've got to, uh, I've got to split the group up. So half of the choir needs to go upstairs, and I'll work with the other half here. And he asked me, a kid in the choir, if I could work with the the uh, the half one half of the group that was going to Russia. So wow. I was like, whoa, this is amazing. <laughs> That's a big leadership. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he never had a kid do a uh, run rehearsal before, you know, so I was I was flattered to say the least. It was fun. As I mentioned, the conductor's name is Robert Hamilton, Dr. Hamilton, or we would call him Dr. H. And after that rehearsal, all the all my peers, my friends, the kids would call me Dr. S. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it was, that really gave me a taste of it. But again, you know, after I left the choir and uh, moved on into high school and college and everything, I, I didn't really think anything of it. That was just a neat experience at that time. So I went to Ithaca College okay. and I majored in composition. And I spent a lot of time accompanying for all kinds of things for in the musical theater department, the opera department, uh, for lots of voice voice majors in their lessons and rep classes and instrumentalists and I had my hand in anything I could do I was just happy to be doing it and uh, and my goal at that point was to move to to New York and to work on Broadway as a pianist and conductor oh, wow. so after I graduated uh, got my bachelor's of music uh, that was in 99 then uh, moved to New York and started playing for shows, you know, uh, mostly off-Broadway. I did one Broadway show while I was there, um, but several off-Broadway shows, uh, playing keyboard, and a few shows I was conducting as well. And enjoyed it, had a, had a great time, uh, but I was a little frustrated with some things up there. One was just, I was just newly married, and we were thinking of having kids, and it was difficult not knowing what kind of work I would have from month to month. You know, it's, you don't have a steady job. It's you do a show and then you get another show. And you right. know, and uh, I was fortunate and blessed that I was always working. I didn't really have any dry times. It was going well, but it was just scary not knowing month to month what kind of income I'd have. And, sure. Um, so that that was difficult. Also, the culture up there is different, a bit different than my upbringing 
and I tend to be very conservative. You know, I take my faith very seriously. I'm a Christian, and I, I take that very seriously. And mm -hmm. up in New York, it's very liberal, not Christian. I should, I guess, I could say a lot of the a lot of the people that I was coming in contact with that was faith that had nothing to do with their lives, and they had you know other things guiding them. And to be honest, that really got to me after a while. That it was difficult because. Um, a lot of the people that I had worked with were very outspoken about their views and things in life, and it was just difficult. I felt a little alone, I guess. That might be the best way to put it. I felt mm -hmm. a little alone, so it, it was wearing down on me. But um, I was there for about a year and a half, then I got a phone call from Dr. Hamilton. Oh, wow. He reached out to you. Yes, yeah. He said they their assistant conductor at the time, Joe Fitzmartin, was leaving the choir he was going to start his own group so they had the our choir had an upcoming tour and he needed to find an accompanist for that tour and he had been keeping tabs on me he had heard about what I was doing and you know was impressed that things were going well as a pianist for me so he thought I might be the right person to call down for this tour so he said it was the China and South Korea so he said you know we'd love to take you on tour if you're able so I said hey great free trip to China I'm there you know <laughs> so went on the tour had a great time I believe it was on that tour where he mentioned that he was thinking of retiring soon not sure when but in the future and you know needed to find a replacement someone to take his position he had been leading the, the group for over 30 years. I think at, at that point, it's about 35 years. He was the group, and the group was him. I mean, it was his life 24-7. So this was a huge step to find a replacement for him. Sure. The board of directors, you know, they they wanted to do a search, but they also respected how much this, this choir was his baby, and he really needed to to pick who was going to replace him. So, uh, you know, he, he kind of floated the idea, is it something I'd be interested in? And at the time I said, no, I, you know, I don't think so. I'm, I'm going to, we're going to have a family and this was your whole life. And I, I, just, I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. It um, sounds like you felt a little unworthy of that. Yeah, a little bit. And also there were, you know, I, I told you some of the frustrations I had up in New York, but I was also, there were things that were great about it and that I was enjoying about it, certainly the music and and the shows, I, I really loved it. I was passionate about that um, that genre, so I, I was enjoying it, and um, I wasn't wasn't ready to leave yet. But these other things started weighing on me, and you know, I prayed about it, saying, "I, I don't know where where we're going here." But at, at a certain period of time, I just said, "You know, maybe maybe I should consider that." And my wife, <clears throat> I, I mentioned it to her, and she said, "You know, I was thinking the same thing." Hmm. So I said, all right, let, let's give it a shot. So at that point, the offer was really just for me to come down to Philly and shadow him for a little bit and be assistant conductor and then see how it goes. And so that's what I started to do that. I was, we were, I was still living up there, working in New York, but also coming down here, um, as, as I said, to shadow and to be assistant conductor. And so that was for about a two-year period after which then he retired and I took over. Wow, that's wonderful. It sounds like a great opportunity to ease into this role. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's great. And it was, it was really for both of us. I think um, because the, the reins had never been handed over before, 
it was kind of for everybody to figure out, well, what exactly will this mean? Will the position be exactly the same? I mean, you know, he was, besides all of the duties you mentioned that I have, he was also the, the master fundraiser. And, oh, wow. you know, he, he could, he would get people to donate. He would come up with ideas on how to raise money for the organization. He did a lot. It, he was, he was the choir. So it, those two years was a chance for us to all figure out what will this position look like? How are things going to be a little different? What were my strengths and what were my weaknesses? What are some things that I couldn't do, for instance, the fundraising? You know, so other staff would need to take on those roles. And I think it was also a chance for him to, to get used to um, stepping away, you know. I give him an amazing amount of credit for being able to do that, you know, to, to just say, okay, Jeff, it's yours now. And um, he was always around and available if I needed anything. But once I took over, he just let me, let me do my thing and um, stayed out of it, which I can't even imagine how difficult that must have been. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of courage and a yeah. lot of uh, patience. Self-awareness, yeah. Yeah. Growing up, you said you began at, at eight years old. That seems like such a young age. And, uh, and then you kind of dove right in. That was that's pretty awesome that you were able to go from advanced cadets to the performing choir in such a short amount of time. Tell me about your first tour. What did that look like? How old were you? Uh, what did your parents think? Okay, well, by the time I was in the choir, I, I was eight turning nine. And uh, that year, there was a tour planned for Germany, but got canceled, and I don't remember why. I think there's some political concerns, or uh, I honestly don't remember. But it got canceled, and so they just did some kind of overnight trip in the area, um, some kind of overnight camp thing, or I don't recall. And um, it was actually during the same time our family vacation was planned, and since it wasn't, it was just a little overnight thing. Um, I didn't go on that little trip. The following year, we was uh, 87, and it was the bicentennial of the United States Constitution, and so our trip was a tour of the original 13 colonies. Hmm. And uh, it was actually two trips, one in May for the northern and then northern states, and then in October for the southern states. So they were, that was my, those two were my first tours. And so I would have been 10 at the time. And actually, my father was had just joined the chorale, the men's chorale. So he got to go with me on the tour, uh, which is a great experience. I mean, besides the, the... That's one aspect people may not realize about the choir is all the things you see. Besides that, you also have the chance to share that experience with your father if he's a singer and wants to join the chorale. It's just a great bonding experience between father and son. Sure. So, uh, again, it was the 13 colonies. You know, I was young. I don't remember too much about it, but I, I know I had a, a great time. And I wrote in my journal, and every once in a while, it's a lot of fun to go back and read that journal and see what stuck out in my mind, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Dive into the mind of a 10-year-old. Yes, exactly. And oftentimes, it's not the things you would expect. It's not the impressive sights, but just the stupid little silly interactions between the kids or or your homestays or things like that 
that's what impressed me more was the time I spent with the people, whether they were people within our group or people that we met. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, it's a lot of fun to read that. We, that's why we constantly encourage the boys on tour, write in your journal, write sure. something, you know. Yeah. They will appreciate that when they get older and get to read back on those memories, you know. Yeah. Do you find that having gone through that journal again, um, does that help you connect with the boys who are currently in the choir as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. As you said, to to get a look inside the mind of a 10-year-old. So, that yeah, that was a look inside my mind. But to me, that's a look inside the mind of all of these kids, knowing what's important to them, what has an impact on them. There are a lot of times when I'll read something. I mean, I don't read it frequently, but uh, I'll think of something that I had read there, and I'll remember either something the conductor had said to me or something that happened, and I'll remember the impact it had on me, and that will certainly uh, inform me on how to uh, interact with the boys or how to handle a certain situation. As we transition from Jeff Smith's days as a chorister in the Philadelphia Boys Choir to his days as the artistic director, I'm delighted to provide for you this recording of young Jeff singing a solo. Yes, this is Jeff as a boy singing Puccini's Tosca, Yo de Sospiri. Enjoy. What a beautiful sample of his singing. And now back to the interview with Philadelphia Boys Choir's own Jeff Smith. Both my parents have always been very encouraging of whatever I've decided to do, you know, and always supported me. And um, they're my biggest champions, you know. And my dad being here, I mean, he loves it. I know he just is so proud when he's up there singing and under my direction, you know. It's kind of crazy, but I... That means a lot to me. Just knowing he's always there and always there supporting me. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm very grateful. Very grateful. Sure. How many people get to work with their parents? You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't work with them every day, but he is a part of my job here. And, right. Uh, yeah. It's, it's really unique. Yeah, that's, that's a, a beautiful relationship that you can be able to do that. Moving along, or moving back a little bit, again, just reflecting on your 8-year-old to 10-year-old self. If you can remember, what kind of music did you listen to as a kid? Was it always reflected in what's what's sung at the boys' choir, or did you have other interests? Right. Uh, well, my parents were both into music. My father was a band director and then became an assistant principal, but 
always involved in music at the, at the church. My both my parents were in the church choirs, and uh, so growing up around the house, um, we would sometimes listen to the oldie station or some pop music, but also um, some jazz or classical or musical theater. Okay. I remember particularly enjoying uh, some of the light classics, like the popular classics, Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, sure, or yeah. Gershwin's Rhapsody or Blue, in Blue, you know, kind of the most famous classical pieces. Right. He had, my dad had a set of albums, records, that were designed for kids, you know, in elementary schools. I guess something a music educator would have. Okay. And... Um, so again, these were the, the songs that everyone kind of knew, and I, I always enjoyed listening to them. I liked, he had some Henry Mancini albums, so some film scores and things that I liked. He had lots of show tunes, uh, musical theater. That's mostly what I listened to. On the radio, usually I would listen to the classical station, but as far as the records, albums, tapes, CDs, and all that, I tended to steer towards the musical theater. Okay. And uh, I enjoyed most of what we sang in the boys' choir, and that's why a lot of what we do now is, is similar to the repertoire that we had sung when I was a kid, you know. Some of the great classics like Bernstein's Chichester Psalms, um, some of the things specifically written for boys' choir, as well as the lighter stuff, the musical theater, the jazz, you know. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that influence helped propel you into your career in New York City as well. Oh, certainly. Yeah, most certainly. Okay. It sounds like your father is one of your greatest role models and your mother as well. Do you have other role models that you can look back on? Um, Who were they and what did you learn from them? Yeah, I would say uh, certainly my predecessor, Dr. Hamilton. I mean, he he was the model of what... I would needed to do, you know, what I needed to be. So I, I looked greatly towards him. Um, and even, you know, as a kid before I knew I was taking over, I certainly looked up to him and respected him for his um, musicianship as well as the way he, the way he kept the choir in shape and kept the boys in line. And, um, you know, I, I certainly had a great respect for him. Uh, and the assistant conductor at the time, Joe Fitzmartin, he was a great musician and a, just a, a nice overall guy, a great disposition, a lot of fun. A lot of the kids just enjoyed talking with him. He's very personable, but also a great musician, a great arranger, composer. And uh, he helped me in some of my own composition and arranging. We had a few uh, one-on-one lessons, I guess you could say. So he was a great influence as well. So speaking about the compositions you've created, how how many have you created? Do you have a number that in your mind how many you've done? No, and honestly, I don't compose much anymore. Okay. I did I did enjoy composing and I majored in composition, but my intention was not to become a composer. I simply majored in composition because it had all of the courses that I wanted to take. So it did include composing, obviously, but also included arranging and orchestrating, which I really was more interested in, but there's no major for arranging and orchestrating. Okay. You know, arranging and orchestrating and conducting. Uh, so it kind of encompassed everything I wanted to study. 
Certainly, I composed plenty in college, and I've done a little bit here and there afterwards, but that's, that's never really been my focus. If you don't mind giving us a definition of what arranging is, what orchestrating is. Oh, right, sure. Uh, well, obviously, we know what composing is. So arranging would be uh, taking, and there's <laughs> there's a wide range of what might be involved in arranging. The, the most complete version is if somebody were to write a melody, just like sing a melody, nothing, no accompaniment, no other instruments, just sing a melody. An arranger then, the most the arranger could do then would be to um, write down that melody and then decide what kind of chords and harmonies would fit with that melody. Okay. And then and also decide what the feel of the piece would be, kind of the, um, well, first of all, how fast or slow, but also the style of music, you know, if it's kind of more of a Latin type of feel or more of a rock feel oh, wow. or decide that and then decide the instrumentation. Um, and then if there will be other voices involved, if it's a soloist and maybe there's going to be a background voices of four voices. So what will those four voices sing? And then the orchestrator would say, okay, what's the instrumentation? So we're going to have a piano and a bass player and drums, and but we're also going to have a whole string section and uh, let's do a flugelhorn on this one. So this orchestrator then has to write it out for all those instruments and decide the piano, bass, and drums parts mostly probably determined from the arranger, um, but the strings and the flugelhorn or whatever else the orchestrator decides. Where are the strings gonna come in? What do they, are they just gonna kinda create this pad underneath what's going on? Are they gonna have some high lines floating above? Um, or are they going to play some fast runs or, you know, what's going on there? Um, the flugelhorn maybe has a little improv solo in there somewhere or uh, some background punctuation things or, you know, so uh, it, can, it can vary greatly depending on how much the composer has given, you know. And the arranger and orchestrator is usually more in the pop field, not classical music. Usually in classical music, the composer creates everything. Okay. Um, you know, in opera or in concert music on stage for orchestras, usually the composer does everything. But even um, even in folk music, I would say folk, pop, uh, spirituals, jazz, all of that, oftentimes you have a, an arranger and or orchestrator besides the composer. Okay, so when we hear say a popular song covered by another musician in another style that was a different arrangement right exactly exactly and it it could be the singer him or herself that created the arrangement but more often than not it's another person who has taken that and made it work for this other singer you have composed some pieces that have been used by the choir when you when you compose and arrange and orchestrate and and do everything for this piece and the choir sings it how does that come out for you? Do you appreciate what has become? Are there points where you're disappointed, points where you're excited? Can you tell me about what that's like? Well, I am a, a little bit of a perfectionist, and that's the musician and the artist in me, so I'm never happy, <laughs> never totally happy. But there are, there are always moments where you're like, yes, that is, oh, that's awesome. And then you say, and then, you know, 
thank you to the choir because this is just an incredible experience. To be able to write something and have you perform it is just amazing. Sure. Uh, but then there are spots where, you know, you're never satisfied. No, this isn't quite working right. And I can't figure out what it is. And, and you try not to waste the choir's time. So I try not to make too many changes once... Once I give it to them, in their, it's in their hands. I don't want to waste their time. So, you know, if I have to make a change, I will. But um, maybe it's something we'll consider after the performance. I'll revisit it and try to rework for the next performance, you know, the next time we visit the song. But um, I haven't composed much for the choir. I do a lot of arranging and orchestrating. But I've only composed maybe two or three pieces okay. over the years for the choir. But uh, it, it's certainly a thrill to sure. hear it all come together. Yeah. You know, and... And to get to mold it and shape it, and um, and then hearing them perform, making tweaks in the music itself. You know, there are things I'll tell them in rehearsal. We're going to add a crescendo here, or uh, you know, let's cut this note shorter, or whatever. And then I can edit the music later and put it in there. So for future performances, we know what worked well. You know, mm -hmm. but uh, it's fun. And then of course in performance to hear the audience reaction. You know, there's always that sense of who knows, you know, I like the piece <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I, I, it seems like the choir is enjoying it. Some of them, you know, I don't know if they all enjoy it, but they seem to be enjoying it. But who knows what the audience is going to think. Sure. So there's always a, that a hesitation when you first present it, you know. Right. Yeah. You have, you have high standards and, yeah. and you're just describing the heart of an artist being exactly. a perfectionist and yet always enjoying what's there and what's presented but letting it go to some extent when you're working with a team right yes that's very well put yeah well thank you so since you've led the choir in 2004 obviously there was that two-year developmental ease into your leadership but how much has the choir changed under your direction these last 15 years yeah you know it's, it's constantly changing um there were some things that changed immediately just because i'm a different person and I have a different personality. Uh, but then there are things that have changed over the years because I've grown and learned things or tried other things or the group is different, New, you know, the culture's changing. So things are always changing a little bit. Um, certainly to start, I, I kept as much as I feasibly could handle, you know, um, just as a starting point. You know, let's, let's do things as they were. Um, they were working well. It was a very well-known, respected choir. I was young and just starting, so it was, let's, let's keep it status quo for now, and then as we go along, we'll make some adjustments. One of the adjustments Jeff Smith made to the BBCC culture was to establish the Blazer Ceremony. The Blazer Ceremony is an induction of the group of boys who are new to the performing choir. From August through November, the boys must perfectly sing their voice parts for all 12 of the standard Blazer songs. In late November each year, the PBCC holds a concert and ceremony to acknowledge their success. Performing as a full choir for the first time, the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale sings the entire repertoire. Jeff Smith formally introduces each boy by voice part, and this ceremony offers each new member a chance to be recognized while the boys' family, friends, and choir celebrate his membership. The following is the introduction to the Blazer Ceremony from November 2019. Welcome and thank you for being here. This is our Blazer Ceremony from 2019-2020. Uh, 
Once again, choir conductor, Jeff Smith. One of the important aspects that seems to resonate with the boys is the sense of pride in the group. I do feel strongly that pride is a double-edged sword. Yes. And, um, you know, <laughs> there is a sense you want to be, you want to feel confident in what you're doing. And if, if it's worthy, if it's good, if, if what you're presenting is good, recognize that and acknowledge that. But you also don't want to gloat about it or let it affect you in a way that, you know, gives you a, a chip on your shoulder, you know, or a sense of being better than other people. So there is there's a fine balance there. But we do instill the sense of, listen, guys, you, you, this is a, a great choir and you're a part of this and it's an honor to be here. And the reason I continue that, again, even though there's the other the other side of it. The reason I continue it is is really just as a motivation to let them realize you need to work hard. You know, you need to keep the standard and you can't just kind of float on by. And so for me, it's just a motivator to get them to work and uh, to do their best because they want to represent the choir well. And when we're abroad, we, they want to represent our country well. You right, know? right. And um, they need to understand the history of the choir and what's what's happened before them and uh, the reputation of the choir so that it's important to them to maintain that. Right. The saying goes is it's standing on the shoulders of giants. And I yeah. think that's something that uh, if you are familiar with the term or not, you seem to espouse that understanding with Dr. H and everything. Yeah. yeah. Recognizing what's gone before you. But then the other side is um, what they do with that when they're not here. <laughs> so... I don't see any issues when they're here with their pride in the choir. It seems to be great, but we have to be careful that when they're out back at their own schools or with their friends, that they're not talking about how wonderful the choir is and how great they are, or that they're better than everyone else, or they think they know better than every no music better than everyone else. So that's tough to maintain. I I try to keep my ears open to hear if there have been any issues with that, either from parents telling me or teachers, um, and it doesn't come up too often, but. Um, we hope that it's not an issue out there, you know, and, and we try to, even though we give them a sense of pride in the choir, we also try to demonstrate humility, sure. um, at least on a personal level, so that hopefully they take that with them also. So what would you do if you, if you did have an issue with, I'm sure you've had it in the past here and there, like you've said, but uh, what do you do to support the, the boy in, in recognizing that humility part and, and his uh, support team as well? If there's an issue or just in general? Well, yeah, uh, just to recognize, um, to tone down on the pride. Because sure enough, you know, there are many other musical groups with schools and churches and synagogues and whatever else there are. And this is a world-class organization. They're not going to get that at their their local elementary school. Right. So how how do you help the boys here temper their expectations, um, lower their sense of uh, I don't know yeah. you know being greater than right right well sometimes if, if we hear there's a particular issue I might speak with the boy one on one but more often than not it's addressing the whole group and it's just a reminder that you know you guys are talented and that's why you're here but you still have a lot to learn you know <laughs> And, um, and I'm still learning, you know, I'm still learning from them. I'm learning from other musicians that I work with. And um, even if there are times when I'm working with 
a musician, maybe a really young musician, for instance, the boys, uh, someone who's much less experienced than me, I can still learn from them. And, um, you know, I shouldn't put them down or um, belittle them, but rather appreciate that there's something I can, I can gain from that. And, you know, for me, the best, best way to connect is to use a personal example. So I'll often tell them of um, when I was a kid, you know, I was involved in all the music things in our school. And we didn't have the best music program um, in the area, but we had teachers that were really supportive and great, and um, a lot of kids were involved. Um, actually, in our particular district, sports was kind of reigned overall, sure. but the music program was still strong and was able to hold its own. And so, you know, I said, I, I was a, a really good pianist as a kid, and I, was, I had a lot of opportunities at my school because of that. But I also had to recognize that there were kids, uh, some of whom were just as good as me, and others who were just starting, you know, a lot, especially in school music programs. You may go up to, in ninth grade, you have been playing an instrument for five or six years, and all of a sudden another kid wants to join the band who's never played an instrument before. Yeah. And many times schools will say, yeah, the more the merrier, you know, so they'll make it work and they'll have to start them out. And so, you know, it's a very difficult job (laughs) to be a school music teacher, to be dealing with a wide range of abilities. Sure. And um, so you you just have to learn to appreciate that and understand that and know that, that that music teacher is going to do things differently than I do things here. Uh, One, because it's he or she is just a different person. Right. Two, because they're dealing with totally different kids of varying levels. Right. And um, different situation, the, the different structure, everything's different. And so oftentimes, even in rehearsal, I'll say, you know, okay, this is how we do things. Uh, it's not necessarily the right way. It's just how we do things. Right. Even something as simple as uh, we, we have the boys stand with their hands behind their back. Now, yes. I know a lot of people will disagree with that. There are reasons behind it, and for now, we're sticking with it. Um, but I, I'll remind the boys, this isn't necessarily the right way to sing. You know, but we, we'll talk about posture. Okay, let's go about po- let's talk about posture. Feet grounded, and you know, we go through all the things um, about how to stand well, and I present that as this is the way to stand. But then when I get to the hands, I say, now here, we hold our hands behind us, but that's not the way everybody does it. And I just, I remember uh, as a kid, there were times when I felt I knew better than the music teacher. Sure. And, and that's what it comes down to. So, And now as I look back, I'm thinking, man, I was such a cocky kid. <laughs> that's embarrassing, and I feel bad about it, and I hope these boys aren't that way. So I just try to find ways, stories to relate and, and tell them so that they can learn from my mistakes as a kid, you know. Well, I think that really highlights the fact that you – you exude that humility and you take very intentionally the position you have as a role model. So the best way to teach them is to model it yourself. And as, as much as you are a perfectionist, as much as you are accomplished in so many different areas in music specifically, um, you are always willing to learn from kids who were born after you started being the director here. So I think that's, that's really a, a great example that, that you just described. So as far as working together with other organizations when you're outside of the PBCC, 
you know, with these, these new musicians, it really brings to mind the idea of, of teamwork. And I've never, personally, I have never been a part of anything musical. I feel like, you know, I'd be treated like an ogre. People would be throwing pitchforks at me if they heard me sing. But when I was introduced to this choir and I became part of the culture here, I realized, wow, it's not just, it's not just singing. And it's not just singing the same notes, but it's, it's a whole lot of teamwork. Mm-hmm. That really goes into every performance. Yeah. And I think that that is something that you, you, you do really well at leading this, this team, these boys. What kind of challenges have you had in, in formulating a team? I guess every September or even more frequently than that, you have to form a new team, even from old parts, but also incorporating the new parts. So what challenges have you had uh, making this team work? Yeah, you know... <clears throat> It's interesting because it is it is a new group every year. I mean, I'd say about a third of the uh, boys in the performing choir, that would be the sopranos and altos, about a third of them uh, move on, their voices change, or they, or they uh, graduate, and so we replace them with a third of the group. Obviously, because two-thirds of the group are there, you, there is some continuity, but each new group brings its own challenges and it's you know it's just like being a teacher in school you if you're teaching third grade next year you have a whole new class of third graders and that class is just different you know I mean you're teach you're trying to teach them the same things but they have they have different personalities and different strengths and weaknesses and you need to tailor that to them and you know it's funny as you mentioned we're always learning as teachers you know you try something and you realize, oh yeah, you know what, I think I'm going to go this direction. I think this is going to work a little bit better. But then you get a new group and maybe not that year. You know? <laughs> so you have to yeah. do what works for them. And, uh, and that could be something as, you know, that could, that could be musical things. It could be maybe their sight reading is particularly strong or particularly weak. Or maybe they're, uh, they, you know, maybe we're talking about their pitch and how how their pitch is or their enunciation or, you know, any variety of musical things as well as their personalities. Maybe this is a particularly chatty group that likes to talk and rehearse a lot, (laughs) you know, or um, uh, maybe they bond really well. Maybe they they really have bonded as a a team in a class or maybe not. You know, there's, um, yeah, it's, it's fun. Because it makes it interesting. It's not the same old thing every time. Sure. But it certainly does present its challenges, and it's our job to figure out how to address it. You know. Sure. And have you found that you give maybe a heavier workload to those who are more gelled as a team? Like perhaps the Christmas concert would have one or two more songs than if they had not gelled together as a team and, and worked through stuff. Do you find yourself tailoring it to those kinds of needs? Uh, a little bit. Uh, usually, though, those decisions are made, well, not always. I mean, I, the repertoire and the season has been planned before we start rehearsals. So, um, and, and I really don't know how it's going to work, turn out until the rehearsals start. Even though I've worked with the kids uh, the prior year in the training group, it's still hard to know how it's going to, how they're going to uh, mesh with an existing group and also you know, we're losing kids, so it's hard to know which of those kids, um, which of the existing group can hold their own without the older kids, you know, so right. it's, it's really hard to, um, 
to anticipate exactly how the group's going to go until we start rehearsals. After maybe two or three rehearsals, you get a sense of how it's going. At that point, if we need to cut something, we could. Usually I don't add something, but it ends up becoming a matter of how detail-oriented we can get you know, with the music. So you always want to make as much music as you can, make it as musical as you can, and pay attention to all the details. But if they're struggling in one area, you may have to let some things go a little bit in order to make it work. When someone comes in for an audition at the PVCC, specifically a boy, what do you look for, what do you listen for, and how do you evaluate them? The main thing we look for, main thing I'm looking for when I audition a boy is that he has an ear for music, that he can hear, he can match pitch, and um, would be able to learn and sustain the harmony parts um, when he has them. Ideally, I would, uh, there would be other factors too. However, it's hard to find boys that can sing and sing well and can match pitch. So I make that my priority. If, if there's a year where we just get a ton of kids come out and they can all really match pitch well and hold the harmony part, then I would add some other things to that criteria. Right now, that's the main focus because some of the, much of the music we sing is complicated, you know, up to eight-part harmony. And so they, I just need to know they can hear their harmony part and sing it while they hear all the other parts going on around them. That seems to be a little more difficult to teach in a group setting in a short period of time. The other things we can work with. So if a kid comes in and uh, he has a good ear, but his voice is a little breathy or scratchy and is not totally the quality we're looking for, we will accept him and we will give him some pointers and maybe even some one-on-one voice lessons on how to clear that up. You know, the, Usually, if he comes in with a scratchier, scratchier, breathy voice, there's something that he's not doing correctly technically. You know, maybe okay. he's he's jutting his jaw out, or uh, you know, this something's not in alignment with his posture, and so it shifts. You know, the alignment of his vocal cords, his vocal tract, or the breathing. He's not breathing well, or you know, something is out of alignment and can be adjusted. Mm-hmm. And so we'll work with that over the year. These are things we work with the whole group, but sometimes a kid needs individual attention because you know, you'll know you tell the kids, all right, keep your jaw in, let's not bring it out, let's keep our jaw in a little bit, but then one kid will bring his jaw in too far, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then another kid won't quite bring his jaw in, he'll, he'll still be jutting out a little bit. So, I mean, it's... They need one-on-one sometimes, especially when you're talking about your body, because kids and boys at that age are not very self-aware of their body. So when you're talking about very specific things regarding your posture, or even you know where your tongue is placed in your mouth and making sure it's relaxed and not tight in the back and all that kind of stuff, kids don't think about that kind of stuff. So sure. to all of a sudden have to be aware of that is tricky. So we have some great voice teachers here, Michael Ashby and Maria Russo. They work with the kids one-on-one as needed to help come up with little ways of uh, reminding them of these things and sometimes mental or visual images to get them to do what they need to and to help them to produce a good sound that will blend well with the, with the choir. And, you know, sometimes you can't get it perfect. It, can't, it might not be the most clear tone of all, but within the group it blends fine. That's fine as long as they're able to sing their part well. And all this different body movement that you're describing 
honestly, before I was part of the boys choir culture, I had no idea whatsoever. Of course, that's not having a musical background. Where did you pick up on all all these different anatomy placements? Is it from your boys choir experience? Did you have a course in college or how did that all come about? Well, uh, much of it was from college because as a pianist, I was always accompanying singers in voice lessons and in rep classes. So I would, I'd be watching plenty of voice lessons and we had maybe six or seven different voice teachers at school. Uh, so I was picking up from all kinds of voice teachers. In many ways, I, I feel like I got more vocal training than some of the singers did because <laughs> the singers each studied with one teacher and I got to study, with, not study, but I got to witness and observe six or seven different teachers. Obviously not as much as the, the singers did, but it was, it was really good to, to see all kinds of styles and, and I picked up a lot from that. And then also just from our own voice teachers here, Michael and Maria, watching them and interacting with them. And I'll have them sometimes come, uh, Michael especially, he works primarily with the boys. He'll come and work in rehearsal. There's some, some issue where we can hear it's not quite blending right and he can, uh, he can hear it. He can hear there's a voice or two and that's sticking out and this is the particular issue. So I've been learning a lot from him as well. It's great. We're, we all work together really well. You have to have a good, strong team to have the choir, but it's also, of course, the good, strong team you have instructing the choir and getting this all working together. How do you achieve that vocal range that isn't necessarily something that would be natural? I assume you've trained a lot, but um, can you speak to that? Yeah, I would assume a lot of it has to do with my time in the choir as a kid. You know, a lot of boys aren't used to singing high notes. You know, it's not manly, and you know, right. they think it's they sound like a girl. Or, so, when you're in the choir, you have to just get over that and say, "Listen, I have the ability to sing these high notes, and so I just do it." I learned how to access that register of my voice when I was young, and I just continued it after my voice. I mean, I still have a high voice. I'm, you know, obviously a tenor as you can tell from my speaking voice, but still I can hit some of those soprano notes. I just maintained it over the years. You know, I never, I would still, if I was listening to something on the radio, I'd still sing the high notes. If it was with a girl singer, I'd still sing her notes too, you know. And, you know, some of the current pop singers even still do that, male pop singers, you know, they'll, they'll jump up into those really high notes. And it's something most people could probably learn how to do. They just haven't done it. Since I maintained it all since I was a kid, it was it was pretty natural. But if you haven't ever really sung up there, I would imagine it'd be quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. So I continue to do that. You don't have to necessarily be able to do that, I would say, to, to conduct a boys' choir. I know some instructors feel that you sing in your own range and the boys sing in their range, and that's fine. And I, I go back and forth. Sometimes I'll just sing, if it's a soprano, let's say like a high G or something, I may just sing it as a tenor high G, but every once in a while, something's not quite right, and I just want them to hear it better, so I'll sing it up in their range. You know, I, I float back and forth. I, I haven't decided for sure if I feel one way is better than another, so that's why I, I do both right now. <laughs> yeah, and as a teacher, you have to be flexible to be able to meet their needs at that time. Yeah. I think the most important thing is, though, I... And I'm trying to be more careful about this lately, but when I demonstrate, whether I demonstrate in their range or in my range, I have to demonstrate with good vocal technique. You know, I need to make sure I'm doing everything I'm telling them. You know, it's funny. Some of the kids are a little more 
empathic and that they will just start to model and demonstrate what they're seeing someone else do and not realize, you know, they're just doing this subconsciously. And it's annoying that some of my own <laughs> bad habits I see coming through with them and I have to be really careful about that. You know, like, uh, well, one thing I mentioned was the, they're sticking their, sometimes they stick their jaw out, you know, or they'll reach their neck forward. And when I'm conducting, sometimes I reach my neck forward. I'm not singing, I'm conducting, but just as a way to like get in their face, like, yeah, let's do this. And uh -huh. so I'll reach towards them, but really I'm demonstrating poor posture, <laughs> you know? Oh, so, wow, yeah. And they, and so they may, some of them naturally with, they're not trying to imitate me. They just naturally kind of go to that position. And so I have to be mindful and careful about that. <laughs> it sounds a lot like parenthood. We pass yeah, no on kidding. the things we don't necessarily want to sometimes. So true. So true. Yeah. At this point, I have one more question for you, and it's it's kind of a big question. In fact, I think we could have a whole episode on this one question. What is your vision for the future of Philadelphia Boys Choir and Corral? Mm. Well, there is a certain amount of tradition within the choir that I really feel strongly about. And as the world continues to change and the culture changes, there will always be changes within the organization. But I hope some of those traditions, um, I would like to see them continue. So uh, although I wanna see us move and grow with the, with the community, I also wanna see some of that historical culture remain as the foundation underneath the choir. So when I talk about the, the culture and the world changing, that may mean the actual music we're singing, you know, and or the way we present the music, new commissions and new ways of performing. You know, this, for instance, this last year we commissioned a piece called Cypher. was unique for us and uh, actually in included some spoken word. There were some kids acting. It, it was more of a reenactment. It was very serious. It wasn't like musical theater. I, I can't describe it when I say they were acting. But it was also a, a blending of musical genres. It was a blending of classical and pop, which was interesting. We added some visual elements. There was a screen and, you know. Right. Um, so there's, I, there's a big shift with that in the concert halls today. It's exciting to see the Philadelphia Orchestra also take that direction with some of their stuff. So we're, we're happy to move with that and, and, um, and lead that hopefully as well. But at the same time, like I said, there is a foundation that I would like to see underneath it all. And not just musically, but the attitude and the mindset of the kids, of the group, of the team. Right, right. Yeah, I, from what you've described with Cypher, I, I remember seeing that in the spring concert and thinking about how you're engaging more than just the ears. You're mm -hmm. engaging the eyes. You're engaging the heart of the people behind it. You brought some of the people who inspired that Mm -hmm. piece to the concert and I, I really appreciate the fact that that's that's a direction that you're considering to continue mm -hmm. all right well at this point i want to say thank you so much for this time that you've had uh, to join us here at the philadelphia boys choir official podcast it's a pleasure to get to sit down and talk with you and and learn more about who you are and how you've led this group and thank you for continuing this culture so well thank you scott i appreciate it's it it's a pleasure
This has been a podcast of Behind the Blazer, the official podcast of the Philadelphia Boys Choir and Chorale. To buy tickets for the next performance, support, hire the choir, or audition, go to our website at phillyboyschoir.org.